ready? commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Borei Pri Amen. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat ehilot o'osef ele'i 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat la'doratam barit olam, b'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam, Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Eternity, 
mystery behind the veil Lord over heaven and earth gotta be his fire come with your wisdom and power clothed in your honor and strength Lord hear the cry of our hearts come conquering King and every eye will see your glory fill the sky Adonai, Adonai And every knee will bow to you, Lord Most high Adonai, Adonai You alone are God Every tongue will cry Jerusalem waits and praise is lifted on high hear the beautiful gates long to see you arise when all Zion sings Maruka
our Lord over all the earth. Keep me to your Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast. Uh, this Sabbath, we are enjoying the portion called Bashalak. It's the story of the children of Israel having left Egypt now, getting ready to cross uh, the Red Sea to completely get out of Egypt. And if you recall in the Torah portion, uh, it explains how God opened the Red Sea up, and the children of Israel were able to go across on dry land. Uh, Pharaoh's chariots were kept at bay for a while, and when the children of Israel had crossed, then the chariots came in, and then God allowed the, the Red Sea waters to wash into them, and their chariots became immobilized and drowned, and, and uh, there was a great victory against uh, Pharaoh's chariots uh, there. And it resulted and what is called the Song of Moses. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the song that goes, the horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And that's our Torah portion about the moment that Israel literally is saved. One of the things that we emphasize in telling of that story is that if you go back to uh, the Passover that was like last week, um, that was when redemption came to the firstborn of Israel. But that wasn't the salvation of all of Israel. That was the redemption of the firstborn. But now at the crossing of the Red Sea, all of Israel is saved uh, from Egypt as a result of the crossing. By the way, that begs for a little deeper thought about the work of the Messiah our redemption, and our salvation. And one of the reasons why we call upon brethren, once they have come to the testimony of receiving redemption from the Messiah, that it is to make that public testimony to enter into baptism, of immersion of the water. And, to, uh, and at that point, that symbolizes that you've received salvation, that you have died with him, you've risen with him, and you have the gift of eternal life, and you're saved. Um, the, uh, essentially, Paul says that the crossing of the Red Sea uh, carried that same signal, that this was the salvation of Israel from out of Egypt. Because at that point, once they crossed, they're not in Egypt anymore. Egypt is no longer has any say or control over them uh, whatsoever. Now, the Haftor portion that goes with this one uh, comes to us from the book of Judges. And I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with a little bit of the story. It's, uh, you know, during the book of Judges, 
This is after Israel had shortly um, crossed over the Jordan themselves, had gone into the land of Israel. Joshua has now passed away. He was the leader that brought him in. And so God at various times was raising up what we call judges. There would be certain, let me use this term, certain champions that would be raised up to lead the children of Israel against some of the difficulties with their enemies. When Israel went in to the land, the land, the conquest of the land, they didn't conquest and take everything. They took things to the point where they were at peace. And there were different groups, city states and so forth that were still in the land of Canaan um, and who were willing to cooperate and get along with Israel. So Israel was in the land. However, as time went on, um, after Joshua was gone, some of these city states, some of these elements would rise up and begin to harass and attack some of the different tribes of Israel that were in the land. And because the tribes were in their tribal areas, the cohesiveness of the whole nation wasn't there. There wasn't a Joshua who led the whole nation, all the tribes of Israel. Instead, an enemy could come and attack a particular tribe in a particular area, and the rest of the tribes didn't come to their aid. But God would raise up a judge uh, that would be a leader who would deal with that situation and relieve Israel from their enemies. There was some sort of victory. Now, we have several of them that are listed in there. Some, one of the most popular ones is Samson when he was dealing with the Philistines. Well, this particular story is about Deborah when she was dealing with the Canaanite king who was oppressing um, the northern tribes up in the northern part of Israel. And so let me give you just a little bit of geography uh, in the land of Israel. I don't have a visual for you, but I'll try to verbally describe it. In the northern part of Israel, if you go from Haifa, which is on the coast, where Mount Carmel is at, where Elijah was at, um, and you extend down to the um, southeast, you go from the coastland and you extend down to the southeast and you head toward the Jordan River, there's a giant valley. And in fact, it's referred to in the land as the Emek. Emek means the word for valley. And on the southern side of that great valley is a, a mountain that you've heard of before, Ar Harmageddon. Harmageddon is on the south. On the north up toward the Galilee area is another mountain called Mount Tabor or Mount Tavor. And it goes all the way down to about 10 miles from um, the Jordan River to an area today called Bet Shan. And those are all very memorable places uh, in the Bible. Different things have been said about those different places. But so that's the region. We're in the northern part of Israel where we're at. And this one Canaanite uh, king had a general, and he had a very powerful army. In fact, uh, he supposedly had 900 iron chariots. And that army of troops with those chariots 
would pretty much command the battle. And given the fact that this is a big valley, not mountainous and so forth, chariot warfare was the, the, the weapon of choice. You could travel around these chariots and go quickly through the valley and the lowlands and so forth uh, for it. And Deborah, who is this woman, she's married and she's in the land. And God began to use her literally like a matriarch. And one, Deborah became known uh, because she would sit under a tree uh, in the land of Israel and people could come and ask for counsel. And they referred to her as a prophetess. In other words, she was able to render judgments uh, for the people and she was highly respected for the counsel and the judgments that she gave concerning all of the conflicts uh, that were going on, personal, you know, whatever. And finally, when this conflict with this uh, Canaanite king and this general with his chariot army uh, came to the forefront, there was a man by the name of Barak, B-A-R-A, Barak, and he was a commander of some is Israeli is Israelite forces, but he didn't have all of the forces necessary to deal with uh, Sisera, who's this general uh, of this big Canaanite army. And so he came to Deborah to ask for counsel because she had become that well known uh, for it. And Deborah said to him that he would have success and he would have victory. And in fact, there's a very interesting way that she said it. It says that, um, that, uh, that he would have victory over their army and Sisera, the general, would be delivered into the hand of a woman. Now, that's kind of strange. And when you first heard it, maybe they're talking about Deborah uh, and so forth. Anyways, uh, Barak gets up his courage and uh, says, okay, um, I'll go up to Mount Tavor. I'll get up on the mountain, at least if I'm on the mountain where the chariots can't get to me. Uh, I'll just have to deal with the foot troops. And, uh, but he says, I won't go, and I'm not going to do it unless you, Deborah, go with me. And so Deborah agrees to go with him. Now, this is the kind of one and only time you hear in the Bible, really, about you know, a woman uh, being in such a powerful position within the leadership of Israel. And by the way, most of the study that's done on Deborah is about the place and how women can have a very significant role uh, in the faith. And a lot of women's studies look to the example of Deborah for her will, her skill, her wisdom, and so forth concerning this whole matter. Well, she agrees to go with Barak and they go up onto the mountain at Mount Tavor and here comes Sisera you know he's um, uh, there at the base of Mount Tavor getting ready to attack them and to eliminate them and that's when Deborah tells Barak you know go and attack go on down sweep down and attack Sisera the Lord will give him his army into your hand well, he says, okay. So he, man, he suddenly attacks, which was a big surprise to the 
Canaanite army. They were not expecting Israel to come off that mountain. They thought they were in a defensive position. And they came off the mountain and began to attack, and a, a rout began. In other words, the, the um, uh, Canaanite army needed to, to pull back. Well, we're on flat ground. We got the chariots, you know, and so forth. That's not going to be a problem. We'll pull back, and we'll hit them out in the valley. The problem is this. God caused rain to come into Israel just before that. And the river that usually is pretty dry, that comes down through the valley of Jezreel and feeds off of Mount, uh, Mount Carmel and feeds all the way down into the Jordan River, which is a very small little creek stream. He filled that up and the ground, all of this beautiful fertile soil that was great for growing crops and open training. In fact, when you go to Israel, if you go to Israel today, you can stand on Mount Tabor or Armageddon, or you can get up on Mount Carmel and you can see the valley and it's just lush. There's just farms and fields all over the place. I mean, it's uh, all the way to the point where the other mountains across the valley, you know, the, the, um, they begin to fade away uh, almost like they're going to, it's so broad a plain. Well, all that ground got soaked. So they drive those iron chariots back across that. Guess what happens? Those chariots get buried right to the axles in mud. And all of a sudden, Sisera does not have these chariots. They're all on foot now. And all these chariot men that were trained to fight with chariots, all of a sudden they're ground pounders now. And guess what happens? The, the armies of Israel, led by Barak, they, have, they sweep through them, and there's a tremendous victory. However, Sisera, he escapes. And he goes back up to an area where he knows it's safe for him, uh, that, are, that these are families and houses that are in agreement with the Canaanites. They're not siding with the Israelites. And he finds this one woman and asked to hide in her tent. And so he goes in her tent, she agrees, and he's, she's going to cover him up with some rugs so that if anybody comes searching for him, they just see a pile of rugs, but they don't see him. And he's very thirsty, and he asks for something. She gives him some milk and covers him up with the rugs and with the instruction that if anybody comes and asks or inquires about him, just tell him that, no, you haven't seen him, and he didn't come by there, and, and that's, you know, in other words, it's a cover for him to hide. Uh, so what happens is he goes to sleep. The woman goes over and gets a tent stake and a hammer and puts it up to the temple of his head, and drives a tent stake right through his head through the temples and sticks him to the ground. I mean, his head is stuck to the ground, dead. When the Israelites come forth, she flags him down, says, I have the guy that you're looking for. And there was a great victory. And the reason why this Torah portion ties in with Bashalak is that you have this incredible conflict of an enemy coming against Israel with chariots, Pharaoh's chariots, 
Sisera's chariots. That water and a flooding thing is part of the process. The chariots end up swerving and can't maneuver, like Pharaoh's chariots were swerve and they couldn't maneuver them. So the same thing with Sisera's chariots. And it ends up in the death of Israel's enemy, and it ends up with Pharaoh done for. Um, as in the story of the Exodus, we have the same thing here. Now, like I said, um, a lot of people don't, only in this Haftor portion do you see the parallelism uh, to the Torah portion, and you see the same kind of factors in it. What most people do with this passage and judge is this Haftor portion, is they focus in on Deborah, this woman, the example of a woman, and, and they use it for a discussion about equality issues between the different agenda, uh, genders of us and so forth. And they try to um, use it as justification for why uh, paternalistic cultures uh, cultures led by men predominantly, uh, that they should step back and allow women to have more equal say in what is going on. But there's a great fallacy in using this passage of Scripture for that, because the claim to fame for Deborah is not about the fact that she was a woman. The claim to fame of Deborah was that she had tremendous wisdom and was a prophetess. In other words, God had empowered her to do things. And by the way, let me just tell you this right off the bat. Why should one man be the leader of other men as opposed to everybody has a say? It's because the one man should have the wisdom the proper wisdom to lead, not by his force, not by the power of his personality, but rather he should have some kind of anointing from God. And let me carry that forward into ministry. And I'll relate to you a um, incident that happened early in my ministry that, that illustrates it. When um, I left my aerospace career, and I went into the ministry. Let me, let me just kind of lay out what were my credentials. Well, when I had been a Baptist, I had been recognized as professional clergy, and I received a license to minister, you know, have a certificate, you know, and so forth. And when I was with the Messianic congregation, I received an ordination uh, for as a Messianic uh, leader, elder. And I've ordained elders, and I've been an elder, and so forth. And then I started the ministry organization. I was the director of the ministry organization. But let's really stop and think about this. For what, what kind of credentials are those really in the world? They're just placeholder descriptions. You know, oh, I see you're standing up. Why, why are you standing up? Well, I have this uh, title. I have this position. But where's the real authority? Where's the real authority for me to go out and minister um, with the brethren? And why in the world should anybody pay attention to me? I mean, there's all kinds of different people out there. Why you should listen to this guy or that guy or whatever. Well, it, we, as brethren, 
understand that when a minister stands up, that he has some kind of ordination or commissioning from God. And anyways, to summarize how this all came together, early in my ministry, I was invited uh, down into the Dallas-Fort Worth area to speak at several different locations. And one of the opportunities I had was what they call an Ironman luncheon. It's a business professionals. They all get together at this barbecue place, and they all have a barbecue band sandwich and have a little lunch, and they have a little devotional, and they're all believing guys. They're all Christian guys, you know. We all get together and encourage one another and so forth um, for a lunch once a month. And so they invited me for the price of a barbecue sandwich, which I was sold. Uh, I would come and share a devotional. You know, I get 15 minutes to share with them and so forth. And so I go and um, the guys are coming in and out. And, and at some point I'm woofing down the sandwich as fast as I can. And I finally get the sandwich down. They say, OK, go ahead, share your thing. And so I got up and and there's probably oh, 40, 50 guys there, as I recall. And I begin to share and only got a short period of time. You're looking at a guy that if I want to teach you something, I got to spend the first 40 minutes doing the introduction. So if you only give me 15 minutes, I, I can't really lay the thing out like I would love to lay it out. I just got to get to the point, get it done. And so that's basically what I did. I just bang, 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 hit them on the three key points and we're done. No development, no backups, you know, just here's the information. I get done. Everybody's breaking up for lunch because everybody's got to go back to work. And there's this one gentleman who was older than I who uh, walked up to me after the lunch. And I could tell he wasn't happy with what I had said. He didn't like it. And I sensed that there, he, he had some strong feelings because his eyes were watering. I mean, you know, he, he was having an emotional reaction to, and he walked up to me and, um, he, um, he said to me very direct, he said, you would have to admit Monty that what you said there was very subjective. And rather than disagree with him, I said, you are absolutely correct. What I said was very subjective. Had I had more time, I would have been objective in my presentation, but because of the shortness of time, I had to just give it to you in a subjective mode. Well, there's no dispute there between us. He's made a point, I've agreed with him. And I can tell he's still looking to justify his feelings. So he pops off and he says, well, how old are you? Like, was I qualified, so to speak? And so I answered him, and this is how the conversation went. I, at that time, I said, well, I'm 47 years old. And I immediately turned around and I said to him, I said, how old are you, sir? And he said that he was 64. And so I asked him, I said, so do you think that makes a difference? Because that's what he's looking for. There's some sort of difference between us. And he says, well, yes. And I said, how so? And he said, I'm in a different station of life from you. And I said, you know, I think you're right about that. I think at 64, it's a different station of life from a guy that's still in his 40s. So again, no disagreement. 
So that's when the Holy Spirit kicked in for me. I'm, I'm, this, I, this is God's truth. Holy Spirit took over at that point, and all of a sudden my mouth said to him, so you want to know what I think really makes a difference? And he looked at me, and at that point, it was one of those E.F. Hutton moments. Everybody in the room is listening to this conversation. Nobody's walking out the door. And I said, yeah, I think being anointed makes a difference. That's the reason why the Messiah is different from all the rest of us. He's the anointed one. And if you're going to go out and minister to God's people, you better be doing it under his anointing. Titles mean nothing. The anointing is what makes the difference. That is the best way I can describe to you why in the world did God use Deborah? It's not because she was a woman. It's not because she was the first woman of prominence in the Bible. She wasn't and she isn't afterwards. It's because she had the anointing. God chose her to do something for the benefit of Israel. Even a general of the armies of Israel recognized her anointing and the power and authority that had been given to her from God. Let me offer this counsel to you in the same way that uh, Barak did. Here in the Messianic movement and in our faith, we have lots of teachers. There's lots of folks talk about a lot of different things eschatology, teaching the commandments, um, how to walk out our faith. We have lots and lots of teachers. Let me recommend for you, like the counsel that Barack took, you need to find someone whom you believe has the anointing of God on them. Do not settle for someone who has a lot of titles and credentials and, and uh, status. And certainly not someone where everybody likes him. You need to find the person who has the anointing of the Lord to speak into your life things from the Lord. The great lesson of this for Deborah is she had that anointing. And thank goodness, uh, Barak followed her counsel and followed the leading and the anointing of the Lord. And she had a history of operating within that anointing to the benefit of many brethren in Israel. And this came to be a very important time where that anointing literally saved the day. There wouldn't have been, there wouldn't be an Israel today had there not been this victory against the Canaanite army under the leading and auspices of Deborah the prophetess. So that's our great testimony for it, just in the same way that Israel followed Moses out of Egypt uh, to the mountain to get the Torah and, and the rest of all of these. God raises up at various times those that have the anointing to shepherd and help uh, the brethren wherever at. So for us, in this day that we're living, find that person whom you believe has the anointing listen to their instruction, and walk out your faith before the Lord. So that's our 
teaching for this Shabbat, Ephraim will come and share some of the new covenant with you. By the way, as, uh, I just want to say thank you to all of you who view the broadcast. We also thank you for your charitable contributions to help us to continue the broadcast and come every uh, Friday evening for you uh, to do this service. Thank you for being a part of this audience. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, to chapter 10. You can hold your finger there where our Brit Hadashah portion for this week will begin. And let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this time and this opportunity to dig into your word, to be encouraged, to be strengthened by all, the, all of your words have to speak into us. Father, your word is life. It's like bread that we eat that nourishes us and water that we drink that satisfies us, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity each and every week to dig into your scriptures, the word of the God that comes alive each and every week and every time that we study it. Father, we thank you for this time, this opportunity, once again on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. So our Torah portion this week, entitled Beshalach, which there's quite a bit of things that are in our Torah portion here. The story by which, of course, the children of Israel have left Egypt, and that it is Pharaoh, once again, has a change of heart and decides to, he realizes what he's done, goes to chase down the children of Israel. But then, of course, we have the amazing story of the children of Israel being delivered by the Lord by passing through the Red Sea. We know the story. We've seen the movies. We have the visual picture in our mind of the children of Israel escaping Egypt and the waters closing in on the Egyptians and that suddenly the children of Israel now were finally free. Well, the story obviously doesn't stop there. There's many other instructions and stories that come with our Torah portion, not only the crossing of the Red Sea. In our portion, we also have the talking about the, the song of Moses, the, rejoiceful, uh, the rejoicing song that the children of Israel sang after being delivered by, via the Red Sea. We also have the stories of the first bits of need that the children of Israel had after crossing the Red Sea and now being in the wilderness where they were seeking water. And we have the story by which they had to journey in the wilderness looking for, uh, uh, for water, not being able to find it, except for one spring at a place called Mara that had bitter waters. And that the, almost one of the first miracles of being in the wilderness. And Moses, he takes this branch of a tree, puts it in the water, and the waters become sweet, and they can partake of those waters as well. We also have the story by which uh, the children of Israel are hungry. And the Lord is, then provides them with food. He provides them with quail and then also provides them with bread, manna from heaven that comes, falls on the ground every single, uh, every single day for them to gather that bread. We have the story of the water from the rock, the first time the rock being struck and water coming forth. We also have a battle with the Amalekites. There's a great number of things that happen in our Torah portion for this week. And so we can home in on, on any one of those particular things and teach about those and what they mean to our spiritual lives. Now, with our Brit Hadashah portion, of course, what I endeavor to do is to go into the New Testament Scriptures and draw out some of those same principles, those same teachings, those parallels of what happened to the children of Israel in our Torah portion, and then teach them from the New Testament perspective. Well, sometimes that's easier said than done uh, when, it's, when you're trying to either teach that principle or... Sometimes the New Testament also 
actually references exactly what was going on. And so here, beginning in 1 Corinthians at chapter 10, this is actually a passage that many of us are familiar with because this is a story and a passage that we are to teach about what happened to the children of Israel, especially anybody that's ever kept the Passover, who follow a Passover Haggadah, that there's instructions in our Scripture basically to teach our children what happened to us, what happened to us, the children of Israel, going through, being delivered from Egypt, passing through the sea. For us, those of us that are messianic, this passage is very particular to the idea of identifying with the children of Israel, identifying with being the people of God. Now, there's many Christian believers today that are not Jews. They don't have a physical descendancy to the children of Israel. And so they didn't grow up celebrating Passover seders as if they were if they grew up in a Jewish home. But this passage has become paramount to those of us in the Messianic faith when it comes to the teaching and the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the deliverance from Egypt. Let me read this passage now in 1 Corinthians 10, first uh, 13 verses here, and you'll start to see the direct parallel to the stories of our Torah portion uh, for this week already. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Let me stop there for now. Here we're directly referencing what happened to the children of Israel and that Paul is speaking here to the people of Corinth and giving them a warning specifically as to say, look, we all did these things, we all experienced these things, but we now need to remember the history of what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, in the stories of our Torah portions, obviously we haven't gotten far enough along to know all of the sins and the mistakes that the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. For those that know the stories, heard the teachings, or been in the Messianic movement and in a Torah teaching in the cycle for at least one year, you, we know what happened to that generation that passed through the Red Sea, that escaped Egypt. They, many of them, fell in the wilderness. Many of them failed to realize the power of God and what God was doing to deliver them. They ate bread from heaven. They drank water from a rock. Miraculous things that were performed for them by Moses, through Moses, by the Lord, and that they didn't realize the profundity of what they were doing. And their bodies were scattered and fell in the wilderness. Now, this is the lesson that we take out of this passage, and we go and we look to, to all of us here in modern times, Messianic movement, and that we are to teach our children that we experience those things. And we also teach about the mixed multitude. We teach about how it's not just about those that were physical, physical descendants of Israel that experienced these things, that were with the children of Israel going into the wilderness, crossing through the Red Sea. And so we have to uh, basically emphasize that it's like, do not be unaware that all our fathers, as Paul is saying here, all were under the cloud. Remember the pillar of cloud by day that led them in the wilderness? Our Torah portion just described that right after they left Egypt, they went to a place called Athom, and that was the first place that the pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, is told to us in the Scripture that it appeared. 
This is when God showed himself, put an actual physical sign in front of them to say, God is here. God is the one who's leading us, leading us into the wilderness. Because when that cloud got up and it moved, the people moved. And so if that cloud was moving kind of fast, maybe people needed to move kind of fast because the cloud knew where they were going and where they needed to be by that particular night or nightfall, however that might, may have worked. And so the, uh, Paul here is speaking about how all the fathers, all of our, our ancestors were led by this cloud, baptized unto the cloud, as it actually says, and they were baptized in the sea. See, that's what the other thing, too, is when you're talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, the waters being parted and the children of Israel passing through the sea. There is not a single Bible teacher worth their salt that, that ever denies the idea or the, the parallel that the crossing of the Red Sea, the children of Israel passing through the sea, was similar to a baptism, a mikvah, a, a cleansing, a rebirth of the children of Israel had their own life before of being in Egypt, being slaves, and now they passed through the sea and they were born again. They were born of the salty seas of, of, of almost like going through a baptism and their new life was on the other side of that water reservoir. In the same way we teach all Bible-believing Christians, somebody comes into faith, that you have become a believer and you are baptized, you are born again. And that's, of course, what Paul's referencing it here, saying all were baptized in the sea. And that's exactly what was going on here. Now, if you're talking about other uh, New Testament scriptures that we could talk about, we could talk about baptism. We could talk about uh, John the Baptist. We could talk about the testimony of Yeshua the first time he was baptized. Well, any time that the Messiah referenced water, passing through the water, the changing of water, all of that points back to the Egyptian exodus. We already pointed out uh, in, in previous weeks that the water was turned to blood, just like the Messiah performed the miracle of water turning into wine, and that now this idea of the waters being under the control of God, because that's what happened. God, through, with the blast of God's nostril, He opened the, sea, the part of the sea, and God had power over the seas, the wind, the, 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 the weather, and then suddenly when the children of Israel pass through, the Egyptians come in, God then closes the water and calms the water when it is necessary. So even the story of Yeshua walking on the water, calming the seas, all of those, of course, have par parallels to the crossing of the Red Sea. The thing I want to home in on with this particular passage, however, is this, is the understanding that Paul is teaching the people of his time, the first century, to identify with the people of the ancient Near East, the ancient Israelites, and going into the wilderness. This is paramount to our faith to identify with Israel, with the children of Israel. If we don't understand that, then how can we call ourselves the people of God? How can we how can we listen to the words of the Messiah, Yeshua, the words of the prophets, all of those things that they're teaching us because those, all those words, they first came to the people of the children of Israel who had experienced these things. That was their history. Now, the whole idea is that doesn't mean that, because, well, if you're not a natural descendant of Israel, then I guess you can't identify because you can't say that your fathers or your ancestors were in the Exodus. No, we're actually not supposed to, under, to teach that or, or 
or emphasize that in any way, shape, or form, because if we're a part of God and if I've done anything in, in time that I've had opportunities to teach the Torah and share word, my heart is always to the idea that physical descendancy doesn't matter and that we all are to be adopted into the family of God. Well, the family of God includes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Judah, all the 12 tribes, the people of Israel. And so we have to, as believers in God, identify with those people. They are our family. It's as if we were there and we have to learn from the things that they did and the things that they experienced. Doesn't matter if it's naturally your ancestor or you're you're a descendant from them, but if you're a part of the family of God, then you have to identify with them. Paul knew this in the first century. We too have to know this in modern times as well. And that's what many teachers emphasize, those in the Messianic movement, to teach the people to understand. You are a part of Israel. You did these things. You experienced these things. Now, I love how Paul is identifying the connection of the Messiah to what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. There's many times that, that, that many teachers, and um, I'll, a friend of mine, Eddie Chumney, has some great messages on how Yeshua is the lawgiver, and he identifies and, and proves how Yeshua was the one that was in the burning bush. Yeshua was the one that was on Mount Sinai giving the Torah, giving the commandments and that Yeshua is the lawgiver and was with the children of Israel there in the wilderness. Paul is also pointing out this idea that the rock by which the life-sustaining water came from was the Messiah. You've heard the term, of course, the rock of my salvation. That is the whole idea of that, I believe you me, if you're uh, dying of thirst and there's a rock and suddenly that rock springs forth water, that rock is the rock of your salvation. Well, He's identifying the rock that the water came from in the wilderness as being the Messiah, being with them, which the Messiah himself identified this with, which says, you know, proclaim your faith in him and out of rivers of living water, that he, out of him, he's a drink, that if you drink of him, you'll never be thirsty again. And it's like, that's exactly what you need if you are dying of thirst, if you're needing something to drink, you need to look to the Messiah for that salvation. I also love it that Moses, what he said to the children of Israel, what God told him to say to the children of Israel before when the, when the Egyptians were bearing down on them about to cross the sea, he says, stand still and see the salvation of God. See the Yeshua of God. There's a connection to the Messiah being the one that sustained their life in the wilderness. And that idea, that concept is not lost on the Apostle Paul. Now, there's some theories out there when it says that the rock followed them. There's some people, there's some rabbis and some opinions that the rock that actually produced the water, that somehow that rock actually traveled with them in the wilderness. Now, I'm not going to get into all the theories of how that might be or what that's like, and, and we, we, I've mentioned it previously in the past. Rather than focusing on what somehow some other supernatural miracle that may have happened with the Israelites, rather than focusing on that, let us identify what Paul is trying to teach us for our personal spiritual walks in this. Let me continue on right there because he was starting to get into something that we need to understand, that we need to learn from the experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness, where he said at verse 5, he said, but most of them... God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6, let me continue on in 1 Corinthians 10. 
Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That was the story of Phineas that we're familiar with from the scripture. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples that they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There is great spiritual lesson and counsel in these words of Paul. That first of all, you have the, all the examples and the mistakes of the children of Israel in the wilderness that are to be an example to us for, to follow. We have the cheat sheet. We see what they experience. This is not the first time that this has happened. When you're talking about God delivering somebody out of the world, us Bible-believing Christians who have a testimony of New Testament faith in Messiah, we've been delivered out of the world from the slavery of sin and death to abundant life with the Lord, and that this same pattern and example has already happened before with the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt being delivered from the slavery of bondage in Egypt. Yet, there are pitfalls. There are mistakes. Even the people of God fall into all of these things. They become complainers. They become sexually immoral. They, they lust after things. They test the Lord. And they come on all of these things. And judgments befell them, the people of God, that God has a, we have a testimony of God saving them, yet these things still befell them. We must take to heart all the lessons of what the children of Israel experienced so that we don't make the same mistake, so that we ourselves don't become complainers. This is why we teach Torah. This is why I and many other teachers in this ministry for 25 years plus have been committed to teaching the Torah and identifying the mistakes the children of Israel made so that we ourselves don't make those same mistakes. Paul knew this. This is what Paul is teaching. That teaching is, was as good for the first century as it is for us today to identify. That's why we study Torah. That's why when Yeshua is talking about how we don't understand His words unless we understand Moses' words, that means we need to know what Moses was talking about. We need to know those stories, forwards and back, backwards and front, so that we know what we, how to not make that same mistake the children of Israel made. And that's what he is teaching us. Now, one of the last verses that I read, though, has been misquoted left and right by many people of faith in the Lord for thousands of years. That to the part where it's talking about that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, we have, many of us have sort of misquoted this verse in the sense that we say, oh, well, God's never going to give you something you can't handle. 
And we always sort of, we, we, we present that to a number of people where it's like, man, I'm really struggling with this in my life and this and whatever. And it's like, it's really hard. And it's like, oh, don't worry. You can handle it because God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. It's not talking about giving us hardships that this verse is talking about. It's talking about that temptation. Remember that tempt- temptation is this weird thing, man, that when it pre- gets presented in front of you, you then have the choice. And it's hard to make the right choice sometimes because of temptation. And it says right there that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Uh, but, and then it continues on. It says this, but with the temptation will, you, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let me tell you something. The children of Israel in the wilderness fell into temptation and they failed. Now, their failure is to be our admonition, our teaching, so that we ourselves don't fail. But somebody did fail with, at that temptation. When it comes to us and when temptation is put in front of us, you know what? Sometimes we fall into that temptation and we commit sin because of that temptation. Sometimes the sin causes great problems in our lives, great hurt, great harm, and can basically make you think that you destroyed your life because of certain mistakes and certain sins that we've made. Does that mean that God gave you a temptation that you weren't able to overcome? That, that te- there, the, there it was, the temptation, and you fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Does that mean that the Scripture is untrue? That, wait, God, God gave me a temptation that I wasn't, I wasn't able to say no to. Does that mean that God doesn't exist, or these words are untrue, or that I'm not really a believer? No, you're not reading into the words. Or Let me clarify what I believe the words to mean is this, is that if you fall into that sin and that temptation, what it is is it's for you to learn from and then make the right decision, maybe at another point. Remember it said that the temptation will be the way of escape so that you'll be able to bear it. Sometimes, you know what, every temptation... I don't think something can be defined as a temptation unless somebody has fallen for it in the past. That's the nature of a temptation. If nobody has ever fallen for the trick, have fallen for a trick or fooled by a trick, then it's not really a trick now, is it? The whole idea of a temptation is that somebody is going to fall prey to it. The idea is to learn from that mistake. Sometimes you yourself are the one that falls to, falls to it. But it creates the way to escape from it, either for you at a later date or for somebody else who has the opportunity to observe your mistake. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be any temptations that are, that, that, that are too hard to bear. No, the, the, and temptations will come and we will fall for them, guaranteed. The, what we're supposed to learn is how to not make that same mistake again and how to learn from it either for our benefit or for the benefit of somebody else. It's not that God won't give you something you can't handle. No, there's going to be sometimes somebody can't handle it. What it is our job, though, is to learn from it. That's what Paul is teaching here. And that is the wrap-up of the whole idea of why we study the Word of God, what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness. Now, Children of Israel, they experienced many things in the wilderness. In our Torah portion, we have the basic needs of being in the wilderness, such as food and water, is presented to us here in, the, in our story, in our Torah portion. 
Yeshua, of course, being the ultimate example and the ultimate satisfaction to those needs. Because it was the Messiah himself that said, he was a piece of bread you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. A piece of uh, drink that you drink that you'll never be thirsty again. In fact, if you move ahead one chapter in 1 Corinthians, the institution of the Lord's Supper is described for us by Paul that I want to focus on some of these things as well because this directly relates to the idea of the children of Israel needing bread to eat, needing water to drink so that they might live. If you go to 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 22, it says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Yeshua, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread, at which He had given things. He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, He took the cup after the supper. And He said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This idea of God and the Messiah satisfying our needs, being something to eat, being something to drink, because honestly, that's the first thing that is going to get in our way at any point in time in life is be like, man, I wish we could just study the Word day in, day out, every hour, every minute. And so let's do it. Let's go on a marathon studying the Word. And so you start doing it and you start praying and you're with your brethren and you start midrashing. But after a couple of hours, you know what's going to happen? Somebody's stomach's going to go and say, somebody's going to get hungry and we're going to need some water. And we're going to... And then you almost realize, look, our needs also have to be met. Our needs, we need food, we need water. We, we can't just do that or do one thing for the rest of our life. It's like, no, the, the first thing that's going to come up is somebody's going to get hungry and we need to take a pause. We need to take a break. God knows this. God knows this about us. And so the idea for us to look to the Lord to meet all of our needs, to be, that we focus on Him and that what God provides to us in eternal life, is a piece of bread that will never be hungry again. What a great day that will be. Now, does that mean that when you're in that Bible study and you're ready for a marathon prayer session and somebody starts to get hungry and they're like, nope, Yeshua meets our needs. Don't worry about food. We're just going to keep going. Well, people can fast for a very long time and you'd be able to survive for, for a while, a good long while. But ultimately, we still live in a world that we need food. We need something to drink. I don't believe that Yeshua is always, whenever He said this about Himself and about being this, the satisfaction to us to meet those needs, was not necessarily that those physical needs are just going to disappear and we're no longer going to physically ever be hungry or ever need to eat anything ever again. What the Messiah is focusing on is something spiritual in nature, spiritual, that we are to look beyond our physicality. I think about it this, when Yeshua said that we are to die unto ourselves, that we're supposed to know that there is more to life than just food and drink. You know, that's what gets people in the door. Remember, Yeshua ministered to, to thousands of people and got them in the door by multiplying fishes and loaves and gave everybody a free lunch. That got them in the door. Then they showed up the next time and they were like, hey, where's the food? The whole goal is not to feed the people physically. The whole idea and what the whole ministry of the Messiah was to feed them spiritually. And that's what we have to learn. And that's another thing that we can learn from the children of Israel. Look, God met their needs physically. God is fully able to meet our needs physically. What we have to do is we have to 
examine ourselves and to see, well, what, what's going on with us internal or spiritually? What is it that we really need to work on, what we really need to focus on? Well, let me continue on here in 1 Corinthians 11, now at verse 27, talking about examining yourself before you partake of the Messiah. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself as so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. But if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I set in order when I come. This whole idea of examining yourself to not eat of these things, partake in these things in an unworthy manner, meaning if you have malice in your heart, in your spirit, wickedness in your life, these are things that you need to clean up before you partake with the Lord. So that judgment doesn't befall you. Everybody wants to eat a piece of bread and never be hungry again. Everybody wants to drink a drink and never be thirsty again. But before you get to that point, you've got to do that self-examination, that spiritual examination. What's in your heart? What's in your mind before you partake in those things? And that's what the Lord is trying, what I, really the, the teaching I see is this. It's not about physical bread and physical drink. It's about spiritual nourishment, spiritual satisfaction, and, and, and quenching what you need in your life spiritually, which is the Spirit of God. You need God's love, His, His peace, His, His goodness inside you. That's what you need to be fed spiritually. His Word needs to be speak, speak life into you. Scripture says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord that every breath that you breathe, uh, the, the ruach uh, that you, the, the air that, that, sat, that keeps us alive, that sustains us, all of those things all come from the mouth of the Lord. And that it's a spiritual need that we have before us, not a physical need. If you would now turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. The children of Israel, after they were satisfied and saved from uh, the Egyptians, they rejoiced before the Lord. There's another parallel, and I mentioned that they sang a song to the Lord, proclaiming how mighty and great that He is, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The focus, obviously, after that miracle took place is, of course, on the Lord. It's on the Lord that, that, that He was the one that saved them, He by His almighty strength. And they rejoiced before Him. Well, they sang a song. Well, here in Revelation uh, chapter 15, we have another parallel to our portion here, where we have a song that those that are saved will sing, and there's almost like new verses that are given to us by the rejoicing and singing to the Lord. Revelation 15, beginning of verse 1, says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, and in them the wrath of God complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, 
standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. This is the rejoicing that we are to focus on the Lord and His deliverance and what He has done for us. Like I said before, this is a spiritual need that we have. When God physically delivers us from all of these things, maybe then we finally will realize that, that God has satisfied our physical needs and then we'll focus on rejoicing before Him. What I want to be, as a believer before the Lord, I want to be one that worships Him and focuses and recognizes that this is a spiritual issue rather than seeing that something, some physical evidence has to be proven to me that God's deliverance is true and that His power is great. Remember doubting Thomas? He wouldn't believe that the Messiah, until he felt the scars in his hand and the, and the piercing on his side, that then he believed until he had the physical sign. But blessed are those who believe without the physical evidence. Some will need to have the physical evidence. All, all our physical needs are met when saved and, and food and be satisfied before we believe. Let us be the ones that believe and rejoice before the Lord before, knowing and recognizing the spiritual need. And once again, we have more words here in Revelation, more verses to the song we'll be singing, and it will be a time of rejoicing when the Lord saves us all, singing songs before the Lord just as they sang on the, on the opposite shores of the Red Sea after being delivered, and that here in Revelation, speaking of the last generation, we too will be singing songs, great songs of deliverance uh, at the end of the age. One of the last passages I want to talk about here is, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is, um, there's a very specific uh, reference to our Torah portion here, and it has to do with the uh, portion about the manna. That, I, like I said before, the children of Israel, they received the manna, the bread from heaven, and that there were some very specific instructions about this bread from heaven that the children of Israel were to obey. When it came to them uh, gathering the manna, so to meet their physical needs, it always said that take what you need for the day. Don't take any more. Don't take in abundance. But, of course, there was another miracle associated with that. If you took more, if you tried to keep and save some manna left over for the next day, it was rotted, infested with worms, and couldn't be eaten if you chose to uh, do that and keep some of that. And that's one of the 10 ways the children of Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness by keeping this manna left over. And it specifically said that each one was to take just what they needed. If you needed a lot, gather much. If you only needed a little, gather a little. But no, and then we were always satisfied with what we needed and what was gathered. Now, the same sort of principle in a quote from our Torah portion is taught to us again here in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Let me read here now at 2 Corinthians 8, uh, beginning at verse 8. It says this, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord, Yeshua Messiah, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began 
and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That, it, that as there was readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased uh, and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, and there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. There's another great teaching that can be drawn out of this in the idea that we should always focus on what our specific needs are and that when there is an abundance of something that we might have, that we are looking for those that are in need to give them, to lift them up, so that then at the time in which we are in need and somebody else has an abundance, that we all can, can equally share the burden and, be, and receive the blessings of what we need, whether some needs more or less or whatever it might be. I love the, this whole idea and that this sort of wraps up the, some of the idea of what I was talking about here, about believing in God, worshiping Him, knowing that we're, it's a spiritual battle that we're fighting before having the physical evidence of it. Hear what I said there, or what, what Paul said, where it says, for there is first a willing mind that is accepted according to what one has that we have so much knowledge, so much understanding of Scripture, that we choose to believe in God, perhaps even before all of our physical needs are met or before every possible exhausted piece of evidence that God is all-powerful, God is all-great, because we'll have that evidence at the end of the age when He delivers us with great miracles, but that we believe all from, from the get-go. We believe in the beginning that we know that our deliverance will come, that God will meet our needs, that God will bless us, that God will save us. Because like he said, a willing heart is accepted for what one has, not according to what, one, what someone doesn't have. See, what, if we always focus on what hasn't come yet, if we always focus on what God has not yet done then our focus obviously is not upon what God has already, what He already has done by blessing us, by, by the life that we have, by the people that we know, by the, by the miracles that we've already witnessed. But if some of us sit around and all we do is focus on, well, you know what? The Lord hasn't delivered us out of this terrible world yet. Or, uh, you know, the Lord hasn't blessed me financially yet that it's all like, I, I believe that the Lord was going to give me a whole lot of finances that was going to make, make so that I have no needs, but I am not blessed that way yet, and I'm just still, and that's what I'm waiting on. Well, you know what? How willing of a heart do you have to follow and truly believe in God if all you're focusing on is what you do not have? The willing heart focuses on what they already do have. That it's not about just uh, having a desire to be a believer in God, but it's also about the completion of it. That it's like that, that, that those things will come later. But who are you now in this place, in this time? This should be an encouragement to all people. And, and, and this is a message that is really going on the forefront to fight uh, people that are depressed or have anxiety or people that are always so concerned about what they don't have. 
the fear of what's still to come the, or, or, or wondering when the Lord is going to come back. When is the Lord going to perform great miracles and judgments and signs again? And when am I going to see the physical evidence of God's power that He truly is ruler over all this earth while we still have physical kings and, and rulers and, and, and still a world with corruption and sin and all of these things? If we focus truly on the physical evidences before us, some people will draw the conclusion and some people have walked away from the faith because they look around the world and they say, you know what, look at all this terrible destruction and disease and, and, and the, the sins that are committed and the atrocities of, of abortions and, and, and the sin just running rampant in this world. If you focus on those things alone, you're going to fall away from the faith faster than anything. Because it's like, God, where's your power? I'm waiting, I'm waiting for this evidence, and it's not there yet. But a willing heart to follow the Lord is satisfied first by what you already do have, by the blessings of what God has already done, what God, is, what God still is to do. And see, that's what the children of Israel lost sight of in, the, in Egypt or in the wilderness after leaving Egypt all these miracles that have already taken place, but then they sit here and they complain and they say, we're hungry, where's the food? Or we're thirsty, where's the water? And they just grumbled and complained. And that was the mistake they made at every juncture of the wilderness when people complained is that they did not have the willing heart beforehand, recognizing what God has already done, being satisfied with what God has already given to them, and all their focus was waiting on the next, what's the next meal we're going to get? I have this other need. When is that need going to get met? This is the journey of the children of Israel going into the wilderness. And we know what's going to happen. You, you can read it a thousand times. The ending's still the same. That generation passes away in the wilderness because they grumbled, because they complained. Are we going to learn from those mistakes? Are we going to be the generation that does not grumble, does not complain, does not beg for the physical evidence and the physical needs to be met before we'll believe that God is with us? When there's a pillar already sitting there right there in the camp. When we've already been delivered from, from, from sin and death and, what, and the life we used to have. We've already seen that miracle. I would hope that should be enough for us to believe in God, to follow Him in the wilderness. But for some, we need more evidence. But that's, of course, the mistake and the pitfall the children of Israel fell into that Paul was telling us, as I said before, to be our admonition. They already fell into those temptations. Why are we going to make the same mistakes? May I commend us, or um, not commend, may I encourage us to not make those mistakes. May we learn from those mistakes, from those temptations that already befell the children of Israel so that we do not fall in the wilderness the same way that we, they did. May we be a generation that walks into the promised land and that learned the mistakes of the old, read the Word, knew the Word of God because it was our, lead, our guidance that led us through the wilderness and through all the challenges that we faced in our life. That's the story of our life. As a believer, walk according to the word of the Lord. Do not make the mistakes. Don't fall. Don't sin. Don't fall to the temptations. Temptations will come. And everyone has the capability of falling from them. Don't, don't, don't fall for the lie that, oh, that temptation's going to come, but God's not going to give me anything I can't handle. I'm just like, no, it'll handle you if you let it. It will. And then it can be, you can be somebody's lesson for somebody else. 
Let us not make those mistakes. Let us learn from the Word and the instruction as we continue on our journey as spiritual believers before the Lord, just as the children of Israel are beginning their journey into the wilderness. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time, this opportunity, for this portion of Scripture. And Father, may we be encouraged and strengthened in our spiritual walk as we go through the wilderness of our lives that we uh, struggle with from time to time, temptations befall us left and right, Father. May you give us the strength and the power to overcome those temptations, to learn from the pitfalls and the mistakes of old that others have fallen for, Lord. And Father, may we walk uprightly before you. May we keep our focus on you and your word. May we understand, Lord, that this is not a physical battle that we face, but a spiritual battle that you are fighting for us, Lord. May we rejoice always in your strength and your power, for you are almighty God, Lord, who overcame all of these things, Lord. And you yourself sent the Messiah, Lord, who overcame all temptations, Lord, your Son, to be an example for us to follow. May we learn from your word and your instruction and from these examples, Lord, so that we can be the people of God, Lord, the people that seize the kingdom. Make us your hands and feet, Lord, to bring your kingdom to this earth. We love you, bless you, and thank you. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.